Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska is produced with support from the University of Alaska Fairbanks Communication and Journalism Department, UAF Kojo. Tell great stories. In this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, one scientist welcomes a prominent international colleague to Fairbanks in an unusual way. Going through my mind, this very distinguished professor standing there in front of me, and I was looking over at him and at the whole thing was a little sort of incongruent because, uh, well, the famous professor was standing in front of me there wearing nothing but his birthday suit. Um, but he wore, uh, you know, a sort of amusing expression on his face, uh, perchance influenced by the fact that I was completely naked too. Then another scientist discovers during a well-timed bathroom break that he and his colleagues are about to be all washed up. But the problem that's becoming acute to me is that it's close to low tide. I run inside and I check the tide chart that's taped to the inside door, and sure enough, low tide was just an hour ago, and there's five hours of incoming tide. I run outside, peer into the gap again, and sure enough, the water level's right there. And I walk inside and I tell the crew, three other people, we've got a problem. <laughs> We're gonna get really wet. Soaked science. Up next on Dark Winter Nights, true stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. Rivers, streams, an ocean, a sea, a gulf. Alaska touches a lot of water and it plays a very big part in life up here in Alaska. We have more coastline than all of the other states combined. Take that, Florida. And in a land so vast and uninhabited, rivers often serve as our roads and freeways out to our remote villages and are a major part of having fun out in the wilderness. So naturally, we've had a number of water-related stories on Dark Winter Nights over the last five seasons, because when you include Alaska's wild waters in any experience, there's a good chance things will get interesting. Our first story in today's episode comes from University of Alaska Fairbanks biologist Knut Keeland. 30 years ago, Knut was tasked with escorting a highly respected visiting Finnish scientist through an area of wilderness where he was conducting research for the Bonanza Creek Long-Term Ecological Research Program at UAF. He shared this story at our November 2019 live event in Fairbanks. One evening then, my wife and I would go to the airport, pick up Jorma and take him home, and the very next morning, we are uh, fixing to go down to Bonanza Creek, and we're going to drive down there uh, as far as we could and then uh, take my dog team up to the, uh, the study sites. I had a pretty skookum dog team back then that I used for field work all through winter. So anyway, we get down there and we unload uh, as far as, drive as far as we could uh, to the end of the road and we uh, unload the sled and we hook up the dogs. Uh, at the head of my team, uh, I had a, was a dog named Charlie Bingo. He was a sort of sway-backed, slate-gray, blue-eyed beast, weighing about 90 pounds, long on legs and somewhat shorter on brains. <laughs> but he was an excellent jihad leader, and uh, he could break trail like no one else, and he could poop on the run. So, uh, you know. He was, a, he was an excellent dog. Um, but uh, he had a little, one little quirk. Uh, 
And that was, uh, you know, being a 90-pound leader and with long legs and fast, he could really pull the team along pretty good. And he had that quirk that when the, when the going got kind of dicey, like um, really sloping outfires, for example, or down a really steep, narrow, crooked trail with all kinds of birch trees planted strategically to have a meeting with a, some brush bow, um, he liked to just turn it up a notch. Uh, this was not a, a fatal flaw, but it makes, made for some kind of scary rides. Uh, now, Charlie Bingo and I actually shared an, uh, a condition. It's called seasonal affective disorder. Sad. But in contrast to uh, most folks that, that feel the effects of sad, perhaps at this time of year, uh, Charlie Bingo and I felt the gloom of depression coming upon us in April <laughs> when uh, the supreme season, uh, that is winter, was coming to an end. <laughs> and uh, so this morning then, Charlie Bingo was still in a state of a, kind of in a funk. He was out of his groove, you might say. Out of his groove, not there. The prospects of, of summer did not cheer him up much. But, you know, he was pretty game, good to go for an outing. And uh, got everything ready, the, the professor, Tavanainen got into the, into the sled basket, kind of scrunched in there uh, with, a, uh, with a stanchion. It was firmly in there. And he was dressed for the trail. He had some good shoe packs, not quite as fancy as these, but good. Uh, Poplin windbreaker. And um, he was wearing a beret that gave him kind of a sharp look. Uh, I was wearing my downriver hat, as usual, which also looks good, but it's not really that sharp. <laughs> anyway, we take off. We're going to go to these um, exclosures, moose exclosures that we have, and have a look at uh, the effect of keeping these pesky herbivores away from vegetation. So uh, this is now in early May. Uh, so snow was scarce, and uh, as we went from the Dance Creek Bluff and across the flats there was basically just gravel. But like I said, I had a good strong team, just six dogs, but we were just hauling behind right across the flats, no problem there. And then we got into the woods, and before we get to the, our studies actually, exclosures there, the trail goes along an old slough. And uh, we've been traveling on it all winter, so it's hard packed, about four feet wide. But now in May, Next to the trail was a little sort of cut bank, and that catches the sun's rays facing into the south. So there's open water uh, in the springtime. It gets all pooled up, and uh, a little unclear how deep it might be. But anyway, uh, you know, we skirted along, and we got up to, the, to our study sites, and we hooked down, and uh, we got to uh, start walking around and, and looking at, the, at our experiment and talking about ecology and bunnies and mooses and vegetation and that sort of stuff. We had a very uh, wonderful chatteroo for a, for a couple hours there. And then we had lunch. The dogs were lying down, uh, obedient, good trapline dogs. Stay, stay. 
no problem there, but uh, obviously my, uh, my, my leader, Charlie Bingo, was still clearly in the, still kind of in the funk, you know. It's nice to get out, but uh, this probably might be one of the last trips out there. We had to find time, as I mentioned, and, and as the uh, afternoon wore on, it was time now for to heading, heading back. The first part there of getting, getting back to the truck was through the woods, and now in the afternoon with the warming temperatures, the trail, absent of snow, was kind of soft. It was kind of muddy, actually, and uh, Dr. Tavanainen was you know, sitting down the sled with a great view of the derriers of the wheel dogs, uh, but also uh, a recipient of a fair bit of, uh, of mud and sticks and rocks flying at him. <laughs> I got a few too, but at least I was standing up. So as we're going along on this trail, he was getting decidedly kind of splotchy and with all kinds of mud on him. Anyway, we're coming up out of the sort of the woods there and we're getting along onto that stretch of trail that we go along this old slough. And it's kind of a nice straight shot. And towards the end there, about 300 yards, it makes a sharp turn. Now, some of you mushers out there are cognizant that there are some nuances involved in how to steer a sled at a high rate of speed because uh, when we come out of the woods, it was just on the dirt, and now it's suddenly hopping up on this nice, Icy, icy trail, so the friction coefficient was reduced by at least the mag order of magnitude, uh, and we picked up speed. The dogs, like I said, good, strong, fast. We're loping down the trail, and uh, we're coming up in this corner. As I mentioned, there are some uh, do's and don'ts when it comes to negotiating sharp turns on the dog sled. You kind of are inclined to maybe try to slow down a little bit, well, if you slow down too much on the turn, you're going to crash to the inside in, and you climb a tree or into the brushwood. If you go for broke, then the centrifugal force might force you in a different direction with uh, you know, different consequences, but consequences nevertheless. I was thinking about how we're going to do this. I had a little weight in the sled with, with the professor, and, uh, but I, you know, I just decided as we're coming up there, the water close, super tight, that I would just, uh, ah, we'll, we'll scoot around there just fine. Well, to make a, a really long story short, we did not crash to the inside, but rather on that softening ice and slick it was, we went sideways as we came to that corner, and we went right into that slough with a big splasher roo. <laughs> oh, man. Now, that sled then, suddenly with lots more tension on it, was not going nearly as fast. And of course, that started tightening up on the harness on the dogs, which no doubt sent the endorphins of their brains just skyrocketing, and they lead into their traces and picking up the skin, and the water just rising as we're down in this slough. It turned out to be deep <laughs> uh, And poor. Dr. Tavanainen was sitting there, and he, the water was coming up and forcing him back, and he was just stuck there. And I was looking down on his, uh, his beret-covered head, and the water was just rising. This is not a matter of a few seconds, you know, but the water was rising really fast, and I realized, 
And I think about that now. This was almost 30 years ago, and I can remember it as it was this afternoon. <laughs> I looked down on this beret, and I thought, oh, his head is going under. <laughs> and it did. He completely... He disappeared completely. Yorma! Well, over an eternity of about three seconds, there were some bubbles, and he started to reemerge, kind of like a submarine. And he still wore his beret. <laughs> well, all this botchery and a bit of hollering. Finally, the dog stopped, and we're here, there we were. Uh, and uh, we climbed on out, sopping wet, got up on the, on the shelf ice there. I finally got the sled up, pulled out the sled tarp, we put it down, kicked off our boots, and started to undress. So now we're getting back to the nudity scene. Um, anyway, we got everything off, and we just kind of hunched on the ice there. Uh, and the dogs, you know, looking back at us, we must have resembled a pair of sort of drowned, skinned muskrats or something. <laughs> We're wringing out our clothes, including the beret. <laughs> and uh, I was looking up there at my trusted leader, and he was, uh, well, standing there wagging his tail, <laughs> looking back at me with a big, happy, husky grin on his face. And I knew beyond a shadow of doubt that Charlie Bingo had his groove back. <laughs> Thank you. Knut Keeland, he shared that story at our November 2019 live event in Fairbanks. This is Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, the Soaked Science Edition. I'm Rob Prince. Would you like to see Dark Winter Nights live and in person? Well, we've got another live event coming up on February 29, 2020. We're looking for more storytellers, so you can submit your true story from Alaska and get more information about this Leap Year show at darkwinternights.com or our Facebook page. You can also email your story to us at story at darkwinternights.com. Dark Winter Nights, true stories from Alaska, live on stage again Saturday, February 29, 2020 at 7 p.m. in Lathrop High School's Herring Auditorium. Sometimes in Alaska, we get ourselves into trouble when we intentionally throw ourselves into some mean water that eventually spits us back out. And sometimes, through no fault of our own, the water comes to us. Our next story comes from Cody Dean, who was part of a University of Alaska Fairbanks research team working on the Kuskokwim River Delta in southwest Alaska. He and his team were in camp in April, getting things set up for the upcoming summer field season. The area where they were camped was extremely flat, and the nearest high ground was about 20 miles away. That spring had been unusually stormy, and they were hunkered down in the throes of one particularly nasty storm when his story begins. Cody Dean shared this story at our November 2019 live event in Fairbanks. It was maybe 10.30 at night, and at this time of year, we only had four people in camp, two guys and two gals. The guys were in one tent, the gals were in another. And we just had our tents up against the riverbank and this camp is really, really cool. It sits right on this little river that reaches out towards the ocean, which is about a mile away. 
and um, there's, just, th there's this little river. So I go outside at like 10.30 to go to the bathroom, and we're just procrastinating going to bed. No one thinks that they're going to sleep well on 35 or 40 mile an hour winds in a tent. I go out, and I walk by the river bank, and at this time of year, the river is frozen solid with sea ice. It's, it's like six feet deep, and there's another two feet of snow on top of that. But we're right next to the ocean, and there's the tides. The water rises and falls six to nine feet, depending on the day, and it breaks that ice into chunks that are like the size of school buses, and they rise and fall against each other and open up cracks. It's, Really, really cool thing to see. I walk up to the edge of the bank, and there's a crack between the first block of ice and the, and the bank. And I kind of stare down into it, and uncharacteristically, the water is churning. It looks like I'm, like I'm standing in a, in a hot tub, looking down the water up against my legs from one of the jets. I'm like, hmm, that's not normal. But the problem that's becoming acute to me is that it's close to low tide. I run inside and I check the tide chart that's taped to the inside door, and sure enough, low tide was just an hour ago, and there's five hours of incoming tide. I run outside, peer into the gap again, and sure enough, the water level's right there. And I walk inside and I tell the crew, we've got a problem. <laughs> We're gonna get really wet. We need to get dressed right now, and we form a hasty plan to probably evacuate the camp. But instinctively, the crew starts reaching for their rain pants and those, those extra tufts. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to get really wet. We need those waders, which we had just seam sealed that day. So we start putting on our waders and figuring out what we're going to do. And our plan is something like this. We've got a boat in camp for after breakup. We'll throw a bunch of uh, like tents, sleeping bags, computers, personal gear, some food, fresh water, some gasoline. We'll throw all that stuff in the boat and we'll probably evacuate to the south. We gotta get all that stuff together. So the first thing we have to do is, we, we have to go out and get the boat. The boat's just sitting on the ground and we left it right side up because we were getting ready to put the motor on it. Because it had been raining and snowing, I pulled the plug out of it a few days beforehand so that water could drain but the wind has blown the boat upside down. And at this point, only 15 or 20 minutes has elapsed, but the water is now coming over the bank of the river, and it's like three or four inches deep. So we, it's no big deal, you just flip the boat right side up. And as we're doing that, I'm like, uh-oh, the plug was in the battery tray. So we feel around in the grass a little bit, and it's pretty much dusk at this point can't find the plug, and I'm like, oh wait, we still have all that unpacked gear. And I turn around, and we'd stacked a lot of the unpacked totes right up against the weather port out of the wind, and they're all gone. And I see one of the most bizarre sights in my life. The peninsula on which our camp is located is covered in glassy water. It's usually dry. And there's no waves, because even though it's blowing like 40 miles an hour or whatever, the water's only like this deep. So I look around, and trailing off to the northeast in the opposite direction from which the wind is coming, there's this herd of like mini hippopotamuses. <laughs> but they're all the totes trailing away from us, <laughs> trotting away. So I take off after them, and I catch up to the first one. That's not the right one. 
the second one is not the right one. Maybe the third or fourth one's correct. I, I, it's like, I know there's a boat plug in that, but it's already tipped over and it's got like six inches of water in it. Most of the stuff's gone. So like, I pull a few things out of it. And the last thing I do is run my hand around the bottom and sure enough, in the little corner is a boat plug. <laughs> I run back to camp and this is the first aside of the story. Maybe 20 minutes has elapsed since I first realized our predicament, but I had three amazing people working with me that year. They were all experienced, but two of them were new to the project. And despite the fact that we were in a situation where everyone should have been panicking, no one was. And everything we'd agreed to get had already pretty much been put in the boat. Like 30 minutes later, we were ready to go. We just needed the plug. <laughs> so we put the plug in the boat and we get ready to abandon camp. And the reason we go south is because the wind's blowing from the southwest and the water might come up enough to where all those school bus sized blocks of ice are gonna start floating out of the river. We don't wanna be in front of those. So we get ready to abandon camp and at this point, the water is like thigh deep, even though only an hour has elapsed. So the land has become the ocean and the ocean is rising at a rate of something like a meter or a yard per hour. And it's still three hours before high tide. To the south of us is a frozen slough that has no cracks in it. It's like 20 feet wide and 15 feet deep. So it's just this giant ice cube, right? Our goal is to get there, get up on top of that. So we begin making our way south. The problem is the landscape's pocketed with these like little canals and uh, little, little ponds. And so when you're in water this deep and you risk stepping into something this deep, you might top your waders, which we don't want to do. We eventually find our way, find our way up to the edge of the, this ice. Nobody tops their waders. Two of us are pulling the boat. Two of us are pushing the boat with all this stuff. But we get up to it, and the wind is pushing this ice so hard that the frozen, the frozen bank, it's getting broken into blocks that are like three feet long, this deep, and this wide from the ice just pushing up and against it. We use a shovel to kind of probe around and eventually find a safe way to get up on top of it without falling into some mystery hole. We drain, we drain the boat and uh, we get up on top. We call my supervisor and there's not too much he can do. Obviously, he's a long ways away. There's not too much the Coast Guard can do either because they're 450 miles away in Kodiak and as we later learned, it was gusting to over 60 miles an hour during the storm. So we do what you would do, of course. You just stand around and talk, waiting for the, <laughs> waiting for the storm to go down. Like, it was too windy to put up a tent, and you had to stay warm, so we just stand around. And by, say, 3 o'clock in the morning or something like that, we can actually tell the water's maybe starting to go down a little bit. It seems like the wind's starting to recede. I think, I think we'd maybe arranged by this point that we were gonna have a helicopter pick us up the next day at some point, because it seemed like the storm was gonna die. And so we're just on the ice. And by five o'clock, it's like notably calming. You can see vegetation sticking up in the, on the peninsula. So we put up a tent around five and try to sleep for a couple hours. And when we wake up two hours later at 7.30 or something, it's dead calm. Spectacle lighters are flying over the top of us. And the camp, the weather ports are still standing. We go inspect it, 
Basically, everything has floated to the far end of the peninsula where it was stopped by the ice of the river. What happened is the ice floated up and formed like a buoy system. So stuff couldn't float past it. But it's just like the overwhelming, incomprehensible mess. Everything's covered in mud and salt water. We spend like the day after being awake all night pulling stuff out of the river, like the most important things. And we had no idea when we'd go back out there Helicopter comes mid-afternoon. They pick us up and we leave for Bethel for about seven days. We didn't know what was gonna happen, but the short version is this. We came back out seven days later, and during what is usually one of the most pleasant times of the year, we would like work like crazy to drag all this stuff out of the river. And uh, we keep doing our field work, and the field season's a success. We spend more, three more months out there. It's a great season. After a summer of field research kicked off by his dramatic near-miss flooding experience, Cody returned home to Fairbanks where he was involved in a violent bicycle accident that resulted in traumatic brain injury. Unfortunately, he didn't take enough time to heal from his wounds before trying to return to normal life, and this only led to more challenges for him. Here's Cody again. As a side job, I was teaching a course at the university, and I never instructed a course. I was looking forward to it, but I just jumped right back into work probably too fast. Definitely too fast. For sure too fast. <laughs> I don't file a disability accommodation or anything like that. I just, you know, I'm just kind of in a blur going through the motions. And I think uh, the project was close to getting a bunch of new money and has like three years of summer salary in it. But it turns out I love teaching. I, I just love instructing this course. And it, what's great about it is it gives me lots of focus. Because as can be expected after a traumatic brain injury, I'm struggling with frequent anxiety and depression. And teaching that course and seeing the 35 students gave me like a focus. I wasn't thinking about anything extra like rewards or compliments. I was just trying to do my job. And why this is really important is at the same time, I was getting fired from my research job because I wasn't getting the support or the conditions that I needed for a healthy work environment. And so not only was I dealing with all this mental unrest and the cloudiness from the accident, but people that I'd worked with for, I don't know, some of them five years, they were saying, good luck, go do something else. And the take home message from all this is, earlier in the season, when I was thinking about how cool the work was that we were doing and the people that would benefit, I began confusing the motives for why we do work and the decisions we make with the consequences. Those compliments and you know, praise or thank you and all that stuff, that's a consequence of the decisions that we make and the things that we do. When we start confusing those with the motivations, we're mixing up why we're making decisions. And so that's my lesson from this whole story. I thought that I understood the idea of why we do things pretty well before all these accidents happened and the flood and all that stuff. But what these experiences have taught me is that I hope that I know this idea a little bit better, that we need to just stay focused on the job that we're doing. And whatever comes out of that is just a consequence, not a motive. Thank you so much for listening to my story on this dark winter night. Cody Dean. He shared that story at our November 2019 live event in Fairbanks. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, the Soaked Science Edition. Today's episode was edited by Ryan Peterson and myself, Rob Prince. Storyteller audio was recorded by John Huff and Matt Hutter of Alaska Universal Productions. Story consultation by Lori Neufeld. Special thanks to Dr. Mary Beth Lee and the Bonanza Creek Long-Term Ecological Research Program at the University of Alaska Fairbanks for their assistance in recruiting today's storytellers. Don't forget our next live event is coming up quick, Saturday, February 29th, 7 p.m., Herring Auditorium. It's one small step for storytellers and one giant leap for our calendars. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince. Ash one. Ash one. Ash one. Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska is produced with support from the University of Alaska Fairbanks Communication and Journalism Department, UAF Kojo, Tell Great Stories. Ash one. Ash one.